We uh, are in the middle of uh, a series uh, for the historic season of Lent in the church calendar, the 40 days that lead up to the marking of Good Friday and Easter Sunday when we mark Jesus's death and resurrection. And uh, what we have been doing for Lent is giving up false beliefs for Lent, much like we might give up chocolate for Lent. But in this case, we don't want you to return to these false beliefs afterward. And so we have been uh, digging into a lot of really, um, I don't know, things that maybe don't get talked about very much or things that kind of get swept under the rug. And today is certainly uh, something like that. Uh, at this point, I'll say hello to my conversation partners for today before I finish introducing what we're doing today. Let me say hi to Haley, who just led us in prayer. Hey, Haley. Good morning. Nice to see you. And then uh, also we'll say hello to my dear friend, Elizabeth Bertrand. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Uh, Elizabeth is one of uh, Maya and Kezia's dearest friends in the whole world. Uh, we lived together for many years. She was present at the birth of my firstborn. Uh, she has been a part of Brownline Church since the beginning, uh, the meeting in the basement days. And she is as passionate and intentional a person as I know. I'm really glad that she is gonna be a part of this conversation as well as Haley, because today we are talking about giving up the false belief of purity culture for Lent. Uh, that is uh, all of the messaging that um, makes acceptance from God dependent upon white evangelicalism's specific ideas about sexual ethics and gender identities. Uh, purity culture peaked in the 1990s and in the early 2000s when many in our community were in high school or in college. So there's lots of personal experience with purity culture uh, um, uh, represented in our church. It is less all consuming of the church youth group experience today. Uh, and that is as the result of some very public examples of toxicity, which we'll get into before we're done today. Um, however, it is still present in many ways and it's toxic legacy endures for sure. Uh, I would also say that even in uh, even as the the impact of uh, of of purity culture, its main domain is evangelical church youth group culture. It impacts a wider American culture even beyond. So even for a family or a context like mine that I did not grow up uber religious, I think purity culture is in the air. And so it affected what felt taboo even in my life growing up as somebody who is not. Uh, wrapped up in evangelical church youth group culture. Uh, so this is this is big and it's everywhere. And this is as delicate as an issue as we might talk about here at church. So we wanted to give a few disclaimers. Uh, you may have heard these already as we as we dive in, but we just want to do that for uh, safety's sake. First off, we're going to leave an explicit warning for today's discussion. We are talking obviously about sexual ethics. So if you have younger kids around as you're joining in today, we recommend listening on a headphones. We're going to we're kind of glad this is an online Sunday. It makes it a little bit easier to do that. Um, and then maybe you can decide afterwards, uh, depending on what your age your kids are, whether you want to expose them to this discussion. Uh, second disclaimer is a trigger warning. Today's discussion will include the mention of sexual abuse and trauma surrounding sexual identity or gender identity. These mentions will not be detailed recountings. And finally, disclaimer three, the three of us who will be leading today's conversations don't have teenagers currently. Currently. And uh, which means some important angles of this conversation.
conversation might not get a full treatment today. As with all of our discussions for Lent, we would love for you to continue these conversations. So we wrote down a huge uh, amount uh, in the last few weeks as people have had comments or chats uh, during the, the messages or after the fact and sent us emails. We've learned so much about future topics that we need to discuss. Bring it on today. That sounds good. If you have, if you, if there's a an angle that you feel needs to be discussed and is not, we will talk about it. So let us know uh, either in the chat or emailing us later. All right, that all uh, laid out. Uh, the way we want to frame today's conversation is uh, moving from some myths to some alternative beliefs. So we're going to talk about myths of purity culture, and then we're going to uh, pair each one of those myths with an alternative belief. Uh, Haley, if I could pass it to you to kick us off for our first myth and alternative belief. Thank you, yeah. Um, so this first myth that we are going to be talking about today is that our bodies are bad. Um, and the new alternative that we can look to instead is that our bodies are a gift and safe exploration is necessary to developing a healthy sexual ethic. So as we get into this, um, I think that this is something that seeps into a lot of different areas, Vince, you named this, of things beyond just church culture, but they are uniquely um, told within church culture because it's not just your body is bad, it's actually like stamped with Jesus, that this isn't just an opinion, it's, well, this is what the Bible says. And so not only is it a damaging message on an embodied level, but it becomes an internalized message that's a whole added layer to work through. So as we're thinking about this um, within purity culture, I think we're set up really easily to be at war with our own bodies. This idea that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, the tension of body and mind or body and soul. It's this messaging that you are a divided human being. And instead of trying to heal that divide, the divide is actually a good thing and you should maintain it. For women, I think this turns into a message of denying any type of um, any sexuality, any type of desire or preference or things like that. So for women, it becomes deny, deny, deny. And then once you're in the context of marriage, be used. And for men, it becomes control, control, control. And then once you are in the context of marriage, dominate. And clearly neither of those um, create any type of a healthy mindset for understanding or for loving our bodies. There was a really great episode, we'll link this later, um, of the Bible for Normal People, where Linda K. Klein is interviewed about purity culture. And she names, um, there's a statistic she pulls that girls are 92% more likely to experience sexual guilt that I think is just really important to name here. Um, this idea of objectification, maybe for the language of being a stumbling block, that women's bodies are a stumbling block to men's experiences of God. I know I got this in subtle messaging um, with like swimsuits at summer camp, at church camp of uh, modest as hottest is what our camp counselors would tell us. <laughs> and I, I think that for me, looking back, the most harmful messaging that I received came from other women um, that had taken this on and really uh, used that messaging. And it was all well-intentioned, I think, and we'll get into some of the details of this, but it hurt even more when it was coming from female voices. 
And so this idea that the way that we understand our bodies and use our bodies either is right or it's wrong, kind of that ongoing back and forth doesn't leave room for understanding our bodies as inherently good. Scripture mm. is what weaponized here that we are flesh set against the spirit. There's a lot of a lot of con, um, contradictions in what we're seeing here. And I think it's really the damaging thing for me is that we become divided selves, that we try to separate out our souls from our bodies and the church paints that as holiness. But instead, the separation leaves us feeling divided and confused. Um, and so for me in this space of moving away from our bodies are bad, the biggest source of healing has been learning to integrate the parts of myself that I may have been taught to control or deny. And maybe that's helpful for you too, that an embrace of the body is far more important than judging the body or trying to separate out body and soul. Um, but that's that's been my reflection here of the myth beyond our bodies are bad. Yeah, Elizabeth, yeah. I'm I'm super curious what you have to add to that. Yeah, I mean, uh, Haley, this the, I totally resonate with everything that you've just stated. And for me, actually, dressing modestly was so deeply ingrained in me. What I came to learn was that how I dress could cause a man, as you stated earlier, to stumble, which was, of course, a sin. Um, because of that, to this day, the body parts that I find the most attractive about me are the hardest to show off. Um, the truth, though, is that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, as scripture says. Uh, we are made in God's image, and God delights in how he made us, and our bodies are a gift from him. Yeah, I was going to say, kind of building on that, uh, Elizabeth, that just like the anxious, uh, the anxiety around deny and control, um, and uh, and just what that builds is... Um, the, you know, we, we, we talked, the myth here is that, uh, is labeling things as bad and be, you know, it, you get in such a, such a, a tunnel of anxiety when you feel like I am a bad person. <laughs> and, uh, and so if there is any way out of, uh, a, like, say that you are trapped in something that, um, that is leaving you with regret or is leaving you with shame or is leaving you with fear or is leaving you with something that you're not sure you can share out loud in no way is you feeling like a bad person going to get you out of that. It's going to keep you stuck in that. Um, if, if, uh, if we can allow for, I don't, I don't know, may, maybe I'll regret this afterwards and it'll be something that I have to think about, but uh, if you'll allow for um, some crass humor, uh, I want to share uh, one of the greatest um, gifts I've ever seen is a series of images um, and um, I'll, I'll paint the picture for you. So first it's like uh, a young man and then, it, and then the next uh, image is zooming out to see that young man among a crowded street of people. And then the next image zooms out more and it sees the, a whole neighborhood where that crowd of people is. And then it zooms out more and it sees the whole city of where that neighborhood is. And then it zooms out more to see a map of like the, uh, the continents, you know, you see like uh, the North America and South America. And then it zooms out more and you see all of planet earth. And then it zooms out more and you see the solar system. And then it zooms out more and you see the Milky Way galaxy and then it ends with a final image which is like a greek god zeus looking white bearded god uh, looking angry and pointing a finger and saying don't masturbate 
<laughs> and that's the that's the series of images that you watch like you watch from a, a young man all the way up to that and it's like oh in the vastness of the universe this is god's message and control or deny right uh, exactly what you were kind of building on haley and in my small anecdotal experience of being around christian youth groups and then but in my decade plus of leading weekly men's groups of many men who spent lots of times in christian youth groups I think this is what it feels like your faith, your life, your existential being comes down to is the measure of your character is whether or not you masturbated recently, <laughs> which just feels not quite right, right? Like that feels out of proportion. And and behind that, again, as I think this message that deep down, the most true thing about you is you're bad. You have demons inside. and. I, rather than the message of Jesus, which is like deep down, the most true thing about you is that you are lovable. You are worthy of love. If our starting point is that, I just think that we react to the natural exploration that comes with, as kids develop, as human beings develop, we react to it in a much more proportional way. And we don't do whatever is being pointed at by that crass humor gif. <laughs> yeah, we would call them the the youth group sins of drinking, smoking, and having sex, um, that there was this disproportionate amount of emphasis on that, especially in high school, um, that it became so zoomed in that you can't really see that that's a picture of faithfulness is like not giving into those things. Um, when really, if we look at that through a loving lens instead of a judging lens, it's finding the things that help us know that we are whole and holy um, not an obsession with particular things that our culture or church culture may label as bad. Yeah. Well, we've already opened up some boxes and so we should continue through the myths. Cause I think that some of those boxes will be, uh, uh, investigated. Uh, Elizabeth, I wonder if you can take us to myth number two while I put it up on the screen for us. Sure. <clears throat> so myth number two states, um, that purity culture is about protection. Um, maybe the alternative alternative belief here is that protection starts with talking about consent, not impurity. And let me dive, dive in a little deeper in what I mean by that. So purity culture doesn't talk about consent. Um, for me, being a survivor of sexual abuse, when I first learned about purity culture, I felt that the abuse I experienced as a young girl was my fault. I wasn't worthy of, quote unquote, being protected. Um, I was convinced that somehow I failed to honor God with my purity because someone had exploited my body. I was too impure to be in the quote unquote purity culture camp. Um, I think the message of purity culture um, breeds oppression, not protection. It leaves you powerless and worthless. And what does that do? It results in shame. And then shame pushes us away from God. And the harder it is to break free from the very thing that you're trying to run away from. So for me, I was trying to run away from the fact that my power was stripped away from me by my abuser at a young age. And to try to reclaim it, I would end up in countless romantic relationships where I was emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually exploited. But as we draw closer to God through the help of community, and for me, it's been years of therapy, um, we are more empowered to break free. And so I can freely say that I'm free of those lies uh, that haunted me. 
it just feels so awful that for so long, purity felt like it was supposed to be the thing that was helping, but but it wasn't helping. It was it wasn't helping at all. And 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 what I what I wonder is like how I don't know. Like consent seems so much more uh, obviously a good choice here. How do we shift things from purity to consent? I wonder, Haley, what you think about that, or Elizabeth, if you have any follow ups. How do we shift from purity focus to a consent focus? For me, it becomes um, this element of shame that we've named a couple times already here is really a powerful indicator. Um, Brene Brown says something like shame is never an effective motivator. Mm. And yet purity culture has tried to use shame um, as an, a motivator here. And so when we're thinking through this idea of um, moving from protection that you can kind of hide behind your own shame and it can leave you feeling really powerless. Um, but instead when we're moving toward uh, a concern with consent and not with impurity. I think something shifts around that narrative of shame that there aren't things yeah. to be kept secret or hidden away or not yeah. talked about. And that's, it's not like purity becomes an absence of acknowledging all of those things. Instead, consent moves us to actually wrestle with the deeper feelings that are taking place and normalizing talking about it so that we don't foster this, um, environment of secrecy and shame. Yeah, um, learning to name to what you're okay with and what you're not okay with, I mm -hmm. think is um, a, a great way to start versus having somebody else name it for you. And I yes. think uh, growing up in the purity culture, it was named for us, what was in, what was out, what you should do, what you shouldn't do. Um, it didn't leave room um, for your own feelings about it. Yeah, there's something about that being externally and placed upon you that, you know, it just, it, it, there's no ownership over uh, the, the sexual ethic that you are trying to build in a healthy way. Whereas what you're talking about, Elizabeth, is if, if the messages that we are receiving as we are trying to develop whatever our, our healthy sexual ethic is going to be, if it's about consent, if it's about ownership over what you, what you need, what you don't need, what you want, what you don't want, there's so much more that's internally motivated. It's not externally forced upon you that you have to fit into. I, uh, I can't help but feel like um, a, a really important thing to note when we're thinking about moving from consent or moving away from impurity conversations when we think about protection and getting to consent conversations when we think about protection. Protection does matter, right? Like we need to build a healthy sexual ethic that protects those who are more vulnerable. Uh, but but purity is just not the way to do it. I, I think about uh, the 2021 murders in, at the spa in Atlanta of Asian heritage women by a white Christian man who claimed to be suffering from a sex addiction. And I wonder if uh, if anyone remembers that that detail. I think that detail is actually really pivotal to what happened there. Uh, I spoke to someone uh, in preparation for today who researched the effect of specific purity culture messages from like a clinical psychology uh, psychology perspective, and some of the data that uh, they brought to me was that sex addiction is a thing, but clinically speaking, it's extremely rare. However, in Christian churches, men are often encouraged to identify as sex addicts. And because that aligns with, aligns with purity culture, the control and deny thing. 
And that feeds vicious cycles that lead to extremely twisted places, right? If your self-identity is that you have a sex addiction, then you combine that with racism and the fetishization of Asian American women by white men in America, and the result is horrifying and tragic. To, to me, this shift away from from purity and and making it this external thing that you have to that you have to fit into or else you're a sex addict that like moving that away from that and toward consent is not just important for like everyday sexuality i think it's also important in the most extreme situations i can't help but think about what happened last year yeah and i think especially with this topic today it's the difference between things being theoretical or some type of logical thing you have to think through. And actually this plays out in really real embodied and harmful ways. Um, and so being able to acknowledge that pain and the ongoing traumas that are existing because of purity culture, I think instances like this, even though they're really drastic are just important to keep in mind. Yep. Well, let me move us to our next. Uh, uh, our next is uh, myth is just aching to be said because it's kind of behind a lot of this. So uh, our next myth is that there is a consistent biblical sexual ethic, and it's what white American religion teaches. Uh, we are going to be moving away from that. What we want to suggest is that developing a healthy sexual ethic is a journey into uncharted territory with God, not an exercise in rule following. So a lot of what we're getting at here. But before we uh, pick up the Bible for a second. I want us to think about America. How much have American culture and sexual ethics changed since, say, like 1900? How much have they changed since the 1960s? How much have they changed even in the last 25 years? So much, right? Immeasurably, right? There's it's like you. 1900 was like Victorian age, right? You know, and then and then the 1960s is the sexual revolution, and then even in the last 25 years, like. Everything is different about sexual ethics in America. The reason I bring that up is to say the Bible is a collection of writings that were written and edited and compiled over even more time than that, even more time than what we just talked about in America, like vastly more time than what we just talked about in 100 years in American history or 120 years in American history. We're talking thousands of years. The point is, is that over that time, like there are so many different ethics that we see represented in the in in the Bible. If we if we trace the different time periods that are addressed or that are being represented by our authors, large portions of the Bible include things like polygamy, in, incest, sexual abuse, divorce, and make no comment whatsoever about the morality or immorality of those things. We we visited one of those passages two weeks ago as we discussed the story of Hagar and Abraham and Sarah. And when there are instances in which moral comments are made in the pages of the Bible about things that are sexual in nature, different parts of the Bible contradict each other. And so, you know, there's, there's the, there is the fact that Jesus did talk a great deal about things that absolutely can apply to sexual ethics in our modern day. And that's a great starting point. We're going to pick that up in a second. But in no place anywhere does Jesus ever express or claim to express a timeless sexual ethic. And so what we want to make clear is it's important to just kind of live in a place where we acknowledge that 
the Bible does not pitch a like universal consistent ethic about sex. It actually is pretty all over the place and morally repugnant on a lot of uh, terms that many of us would look at uh, today from our from our lens here in 21st century America. The the point uh, of uh, of going to the Bible and using the Bible as a resource for developing a healthy sexual ethic for us is not so that we can point to, you know, say like, this is, this is the thing that has stood for all time. And, and, and this is what white evangelicalism does in, a, in America. We just say like, this is, this is the timeless sexual ethic. And I'll show you how I can connect these dots between these six passages in the Bible. And therefore what I'm saying has been being said since Jesus' time. And that's just not, that's not the case. What we can do to use the Bible to help us is to understand that the Bible is not a book of ethics. This is an important distinction. The Bible is not a book of ethics. The Bible is a book of wisdom. And those two things are different. Like ethics is here is what to do in a given situation. You look it up in the ethics book and here's the glossary. Now I know what to do. Wisdom is more like here are some things to keep in mind when there aren't rules, when there isn't a clear ethic. And wisdom has a more timeless quality, though even wisdom can change over excuse me, over time. The Bible, I do not think, can give us any consistent ethic that we can apply to sexuality. But what it can do is give us boatloads of wisdom that we can use to try to develop our for ourselves a healthy sexual ethic. And again, I go back to this idea that Elizabeth is bringing up is it's ours. We own this healthy sexual ethic that we are developing, not it's out here and we adhere to it. So this is this is why I offer this image of like journeying into a new land. If if we just had a set of ethics that was timeless for all time and never changed, what we would have is rule following, but we don't have that. What we have is life keeps changing, culture keeps changing, the world keeps changing, we keep changing. And what do we have in the Bible and what do we have in a living God? We have wisdom. We have sources of wisdom that can guide us as we as we try to develop what we need for uh, a healthy sexual lifestyle. Now, sometimes there's need for caution and that's you know that's often brought up in wisdom sometimes there's need for risk taking and that's often brought up in wisdom and we see how we must hold both of those at the same time as sort of intention there is always when we're in uncharted territory lots of trial and error and i think that's the thing that purity culture doesn't leave room for if the, if there's any trial and error you you you're you, you feel shame and so you never want to bring it up in in uncharted territory if we're just being led into this land of God, help me develop a healthy sexual ethic. There we might have regret. We might get down the wrong path and need to course correct, but it's not shame that we feel because we're not measuring ourselves against some ethic. Instead, we are journeying with God into what we have to recalibrate, but we don't have to feel shame. And so that's where I think it's really important that we use the Bible as a resource, but not in the way that purity culture has used it. Absolutely, uh, Vince. <laughs> the way I look at this myth too is that it implies, to your point, that sexual ethic or purity is a measure of your spirituality. Um, it's a barometer used to judge how good of a, a Christian someone is compared to others. Um, so this notion of you're in, you're out, you're yes. not like this. Um, and this biblical ethic replaces grace for judgment. Um, it exchanges a relationship with God for a works-based religion dependent only on following rules. And that's complete opposite of what Jesus teaches. 
Yeah, that language of replacing grace for judgment. I think once we once we feel like there are established rules, it not only dictates how we act and think about ourselves, but it also dictates how we think about other people yes. who are also journeying into this uncharted territory. Um, and for me, it becomes I don't when we're trying to look at scripture and say what is the clear rule book given to us about sex? Like, what does the Bible say about sex? That that's not really the best question to be asking. Instead, it becomes what values does Jesus model? So we have this values-based ethic that's a lot more applicable to things like empowerment and grace and concern for the body and love and openness, that we can look to scripture and find these things modeled. And it, it, it directly correlates with this journeying into uncharted territory far more than keeping in mind an exact roadmap and then getting into that land and being like, wait, this isn't actually the way that the road is laid out. Yeah. There's a lot of, of pressure, I think in, uh, I mean, obviously we're talking about that behind purity culture, but there's even, I think people who want to hold purity culture at arm's length, because a lot of it feels toxic. There's still a lot of pressure to, provide here are the clear guidelines here are the clear ethics that you know like i want these to stand the test of time please tell me what is okay and what is not okay and all of that pressure i think it it builds back to it builds back to the shame question right and 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 what we're getting at with like when we live in a world where we experience a lot of judgment and not a lot of grace and that is just true that is baseline true of being human in the 21st century in america you experience a lot of judgment you don't always experience very grace i mean think about how 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 we experience that in our family lives how we experience that at work how we experience that in church for so many people right and so it is so tempting to be like i just uh, there's too much shame. I don't want to get I, like I, I, I give me the rules quick, you know. And but the problem is that it compounds the problem. It doesn't make us. It doesn't make us safe. It actually makes us more more vulnerable to being hurt because shame just just compounds and compounds and compounds. Well, let me move us to our next myth. We uh, are uh, coming up to number four, I think. Now is that right? Yes, we've done three. So number four is if you wait to have sex until you're married, your partner will be perfect and your sex life will be amazing. There is a, a, a myth of purity culture. What we are going to drive us toward is an alternative that says a good sex life requires education and open and honest communication. So uh, to tell in myself a little bit in here, personality wise, I am the perfect candidate for a purity culture fanboy uh, because I'm, I'm a self-disciplined person. This has nothing to do with like, morality or integrity i just mean the way i'm wired like this is very early on the way i was born or the way i was formed at a very young age i'm just i just happen to be a self-disciplined person honestly it's more about like having obsessive compulsive traits than being being any any like uh any person of moral rectitude um but uh as a self-disciplined person with with that as a part of my personality when i first became a person of faith and i found myself in a church setting that had plenty of purity culture messages in it i was 17 years old i was yet to launch socially i'd never had a girlfriend and so the purity culture requests of like don't have sex before you're married and be militant with yourself about don't masturbate they matched really well with my personality so like 
as I as I as I grew up and became of age, not in every way, but in a lot of ways, Kezia, my wife and I, in our relationship, we succeeded according to purity culture. And I remember being in a place where, like, we would receive a lot of praise from mentors. It's like, oh, way to go, Vince and Kezia, or like implicit messaging of just like they did it right. These guys over here, I don't know about them, but they did it right. Way to go, Vince and Kezia. And that was always so paradoxical for me because I had it gave this inflated sense of self because of the praise but at the same time there was a deflated sense of self because the whole system is built on shaming yourself and I would feel those two at the same time and it would it would just feel like cognitive dissonance so to be honest none of the purity culture rules that we were told were so important uh, when we were kids uh, none of those, I think, have, have offered any lasting help to our marriage today. In fact, I think just the opposite. Some of those messages that we've brought up today or that we'll continue through as we get through these myths, some of those, I think, made our marriage and our sex life harder. And in our narrative, what I can honestly say as we get to this alternative here, in our narrative, what, sets, what has set us up for a healthy sexual ethic, the two of us, is not work we did as individuals before we were together. It's actually work we've done together through education and communication while we've been together. I think this is really important. The, the, the alternative belief, uh, rather than purity culture, that we need to move toward is, is so important because a purity culture makes sexual ethics an incredibly individualistic pursuit. It's something you do on your own. And what we, uh, we, we, we can't know, uh, what I want to say here is we cannot actually know if a sexual ethic that somebody is trying to live by is healthy or not if we're only looking at it individualistically, right? Because we have to consider how it affects other people. If, if, if Self-disciplined is not by definition a healthy sexual ethic. If, what if that means the person is so closed off to talking about sex and so they hurt their partner who needs to talk more? That's not healthy, right? What if it means that a person is so afraid to be vulnerable with their partner about this thing because it's always only been able to be personal, and so they bottle up a bunch of stuff, and then they hide, or eventually they explode? That's not healthy, right? Self-discipline is not, by definition, a healthy sexual ethic. A healthy sexual ethic has to be found out in the context of other human beings. It's not an individualistic pursuit. I have a mentor who... When, when Kezi and I first started dating and then uh, first uh, got married, this mentor was so incredible to me because in a safe way he uh, that his partner was comfortable with and he was comfortable with, he opened up with me about how the two of them had built a healthy sexual ethic. That openness is the number one thing that has helped form a healthy sexual ethic in my life. The number one thing. And then it's Kezi and I learning to communicate by, by, by picking up on what they modeled for us. It's not things that we did on our own individualistically in that pursuit of you know, uh, deny and uh, control. It's it's things that we built together through education and communication. Yeah, Vince, just to add to that notion too, that you'll have this flawless partner and see the the stars, the galaxy or whatever when you have sex. <laughs> <laughs> if you wait until you're married, uh, twists a relationship with God into a transaction, right? So. Staying pure equals a dream spouse. Yes, um, right, right. So scripture is full of commandments that come with clauses. If you repent of your sin, God forgives you. If you accept Jesus as your savior, God grants you eternal life. But what we don't realize is that the scriptures are not promises. 
guarantees. Uh, we aren't guaranteed the quote unquote perfect spouse. It's really misleading and damaging, especially to single people. Um, and as you mentioned too, without proper preparation, a fulfilling sex life is really not the norm for anyone. Um, when, when couples find out that this isn't necessarily the case, they feel disillusion, disappointment, and frustration. Um, now this is not to say that if you choose to wait until you're married, it is bad. Uh, that's not the message here. It's just, it should be a choice that you're not shamed into making. Yep. 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 I think, uh, I think uh, just to bring up what's in the chat here too. Um, a really, really important uh, couple of comments here about um, how much pressure is put on the wedding night in evangelical church contexts. And I just think that that's a really good point. Like there's, there's all of this, there's all of this built up pressure because of the myth that we're just talking about. And then you discover that, oh, things don't just fall into place because a good, healthy sexual ethic does require education and communication, but you've not been allowed to talk about it because all you've been allowed to do is deny and control. And then you have this disappointing experience and then you wonder, oh my gosh, like this person must not be right for me or you wonder oh god must be lying to me and it's like all of these like unbelievable conclusions that you end up drawing that you didn't have to draw we never had to get there if we would have had a healthier sexual eth ethic developed along the way absolutely and yeah i resonate too with some of the chats here that say it's like flipping on a switch you can't just flip on a switch and everything that you didn't know you now know because you're married <laughs> well Haley, i wonder if you can take us to our next myth before we end up talking for a half hour more about myth number four <laughs> i know i feel like that one really is the one that we could go on the most for just because there's so much expectation of um, the psychology behind it of suddenly something in your life shifts and now you're just supposed to completely trade in your own way of thinking about sex for something totally different and new. And that's just not the way that brains work. Um, but I will move us on for the sake of time to this next myth. So this is the myth that um, anything outside of heteronormativity is a sin. And instead we wanna move into a space that a healthy sexual ethic is by definition inclusive, not exclusive. Um, so I think right off the bat, this conversation thrives off of a lack of nuance. The purity culture brings out a really extreme binary and much of purity culture, like we've talked about before is focusing on dictating choices. It's very behavioral based. But when you fall outside of the cisgender heterosexual norm that purity culture sets up, it's not just behavioral of don't have sex, don't masturbate, don't lust. It becomes a matter of identity. Just don't be. Mm. But there's no succeeding at the church's purity game when you are not falling in the set narrative because your entire existence is just labeled impure. In her book, Shameless, Nadia Boltz-Weber, who's one of my favorite authors, says that if God's plan is for everyone to be heterosexual, cisgender Christian who never has sex with anyone until they marry their one true love and make babies, then God planned really poorly. <laughs> most people, that's most not most people. Most people do not fit this bill. But there's an ongoing trauma here of just not being able to, cl to claim the fullness of your story. 
that purity culture says be less of who you are, less gay, less sexual, less desirable, less feminine, less masculine, less easily swayed. But instead we have a God of abundance who actually welcomes all of us, who welcomes more of us, our full identities and our full embodied experiences. And so this narrative of good or bad, sinless or sinful, pure, impure, this doesn't align with what we read about Jesus. Jesus wasn't as obsessed with sinfulness or judging sins as we may have been convinced to believe, especially when we think of sinfulness as these personal shortcomings or individual identity flaws. But what he does do over and over again is call out systems of oppression and control. He speaks out against the misuse of power, including religious power. He humanizes and heals those that the elite have called sinner or unclean. And he doesn't act to see a detailed behavioral log before he offers restoration. And so when we think of an inclusive sexual ethic, there are a lot of things we could get into here. But one really practical level that I'd like to suggest is that the language that we use is a really powerful indicator and it indicates the assumptions that we make about who is a part of our communities, who is present and who is not. And the other thing that I'd like to suggest with an inclusive sexual ethic is on the relational level. Are we validating and including the fullness of our own stories, our own identities, and the fullness of others' experiences as well? Mm. That's really good, Haley. Well, I'm looking at a time and we want to make sure that we can uh, get to some experiments to offer. So, uh, Elizabeth, can I invite you to take us to our final myth that we're going to discuss before we talk about ways that we can live ourselves into new beliefs? Absolutely. So our final one says <clears throat> losing your virginity before marriage means you're damaged goods. Um, and the alternate alternative uh, belief here is that no sexual evil nor sexual regret can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, um, Romans 8.38. Um, so as I, I learned it, losing your virginity before marriage means you're no better than a piece of chewed up gum. Mm -hmm. I don't know if any of you that lived in that uh, culture heard that before. And so to put it bluntly, the push for virginity equating to purity implies that your worth and value lie in between your legs. Um, I certainly felt this to be true of me, as I previous, previously mentioned, having been a survivor of sexual abuse was already, I was already sexually impure, so I had nothing to offer. So for me, I was like, screw it, I'm already damaged good, so it doesn't matter if I officially lose my virginity before marriage. Um, and so for those of us that grew up in purity culture, you may have also gotten a purity ring. I remember being given a purity ring, and I I can vividly remember uh, what it looks like. And I was also given the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Um, but because again, like I mentioned, I already felt like I didn't belong um, in purity culture. I only chose to wear it during church settings to fit in. And I would take it off any other times because it felt like I was just carrying around this ring, this shame uh, ring. And that burden was too heavy to carry all day. And that's why I would take it off. Um, for a long time, I also felt like God was punishing me. When I looked around and most of everyone I knew was married with kids and I, I was still single at 
30. I can't believe that this was not that long ago that I believe this. I mean, mm-hmm. I believe that because of my actions, I would never find love. Um, but it really did take doing some personal work again in therapy for me and speaking about it um, with my close community uh, friends and speaking about it out loud to believe I wasn't ruined Mm -hmm. because I had sex before marriage or that I was sexually assaulted. And so the truth is not being a virgin doesn't mean you're less than broken or undeserving of love. It doesn't make you unworthy of a loving, godly spouse a strong, blessed marriage or a healthy sex life. And it certainly doesn't mean that your moral compass is in your nether regions versus mind and heart. Um, No sexual evil, no sexual regret can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, as Romans 8, 38 puts it. Amen, Elizabeth. I I just, I think that it it is so... uh, it is heartbreaking. It is infuriating. It is a lot of things that the messages that were so harmful to you are pitched as though they're protecting you. And, and that just, that just adds to the frustration and the infuriating feelings and the, and the humiliation. And I'm, I'm, I'm honored that you would share with us all of this. Absolutely. As you mentioned, you know, speaking about it out loud, only begins to break those chains Mm. that have been wrapped around us only begins to unshackle those lies and um that is my prayer for my child my child and um going forward yeah i had seen similar to the piece of chewed up gum image i've seen the exercise of you have a, a construction paper heart and each instance of being impure, you rip off a piece of that and then you're just left with crumpled paper that can't be put back together. And that's just so fundamentally counters the actual narrative that we get when we're following Jesus. This idea that the unconditional love of God is conditional based on these certain behaviors in your life, um, that they're I, yeah, I think that's a really big struggling point for me of all of this is how it seems so plain, like so in plain sight that this just can't be what we get when we're following Jesus. That if we have this story of redeeming all things and offering hope and love unconditionally, this idea that it would be limited to conditional instances is just so harmful and problematic. Um, And I think seeing this in the chat pop up over and over again of, the damaged goods narrative, especially for women and just how destructive all of these myths can be. Yeah. I, I, um, I think a a worthwhile uh, follow-up at some point that we should have as a community uh, talking about this is how far apart what purity culture and and the messages we're talking about are from um, proper understandings of development of the brain uh, for kids. Like this feels really related to the way that we in our culture place so much pressure on 18 and 17 year old kids to decide the future of their life, you know, and how many people like go through like this, you know, counseling and high schools and make big decisions about their next steps. And then like 10 years later, uh, realize like, I had no, I didn't know who I was at 17, 18 years old, you know, or, or it also feels related to the way that we, you know, uh, 
our our carceral system in 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 this country when when the fact is like the brain is not you know development uh, of the brain is not fully finished until you're 26 years old and yet we 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 have such drastic responses to uh, to situations of being impure in our legal system when you're like 17 18 years old like the, the, there's there's more threads to pull here. Um, so yeah, but we can't really get into those today. So let me let me move us to kind of a final movement for today uh, before we close up. Um, I want us to kind of maybe we'll do this more rapid fire mode, uh, Elizabeth and Haley, since since we've had such a uh, uh, an awesome conversation. But what we would like to do is speak to some ways to live ourselves into new. We we have we have thoroughly acknowledged that we need alternative beliefs other than what purity culture uh, uh, pitches to us. And so, what does it mean for us to live ourselves into a new way of believing that is developing a healthy sexual ethic? Because that is so important. Uh, the first thing that I want to suggest suggest is uh, to incentivize truth-telling rather than hiding. Incentivize truth-telling rather than hiding. I think that when we are in our relationships ourselves, or we're thinking about uh, children or teenagers in our lives, when we reward truth-telling, when we talk about how, how connected we feel when things are in the light, we resist that temptation to to like, you know, uh, make everything about an external ethic that you have to fit into. We, we instead reward the idea of we are, we are uh, about education and we are about communication when it comes to sex. We are not about hiding. We are not about, uh, we are not about, uh, uh being, uh, some perfect version of pure. And, uh, and then, you know, we're not about shame as a result of, because that no one can ever be perfect. Right. We are about truth telling. And so that's my first one that I just want to throw out. Uh, Haley, what, uh, what would you throw out? Yeah. Um, so I think it's really important to be able to name ways that we've been complicit in purity culture. Um, Elizabeth brought up the Joshua Harris book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And I think that his journey with uh, some of this is really fascinating to see. Nadia Boltzweber interviewed him on her podcast and he actually issues public apology and takes back most of what was written in I Kiss Dating Goodbye. It's no longer in print, it's been unpublished. And he kind of went on this apology tour um, acknowledging and listening to people who had been hurt by this programming and not coming at it from a defensive or trying to justify things, but just listening and being committed to doing better in the future. And so some of us might need to notice and name the ways that this has impacted us. And some of us might need to notice and name and apologize for the ways that we have been complicit and used this messaging in different settings. Evans, do you have a third one here? Yeah, a third one that I would throw out is to trust that God trusts is essentially what I'm saying. Like the it, purity culture kind of treats trust with trust from God uh, as though it like could disappear at any moment because if you step out of line or you don't follow the purity culture rules, all is all is over, right? Like you're, you're the promises that Elizabeth was talking about are gone off the table. Um, you are you know damaged goods, and so therefore you are guilty until proven innocent with God. And I just think that like, we've got to, we've got to get outside of that. And so my encouragement is we've been talking about, um, uh, 
frequently it kind of comes up this image for listening to God. Uh, we listen to, uh, we imagine God speaks in yellow lights rather than red lights and green lights. This is so, so useful, I think, to, um, to building a reality where God trusts. When you come to a yellow light, you can go through it or you can stop. God trusts you. Uh, we insist, uh, purity culture certainly insists that God speaks in red lights or green lights. Uh, what I want to suggest is that uh, is that we look to the God who speaks in yellow lights, who partners with us, who offers us trust. Are there situations in which uh, are, are there are there people who are in situations where like they don't have God's trust? Of course there are. Like you know there are there are situations where uh, you know God might like uh, withhold trust from somebody because they're they persist in dishonesty or hiding. Right? There are situations where God will withhold trust from people because they harm other people. Right? With by their choices, by their sexual ethics choices and and that matters but but I think that for the most of us where we're when we're talking about our everyday sexuality my, my guess is that God is God trusts you <laughs> and uh, and and you can trust that God trusts you and is speaking to you in yellow lights and if you if you if you have a regret if you get off track again we're on that journey and you can get yourself back and you don't have to feel shame to get yourself back to the path you want to be on we can just uh, we can trust that God trusts us and it's not going to evaporate in a moment yeah, the yellow light imagery has been really helpful for me lately. Um, and the last one here, this is a tiny bit of thinking yourself into a new way of living, but not really. <laughs> um, but I think because purity culture is such automatic programming in a lot of settings that in order to name ways you've been complicit or in order to recognize how you've been formed by this, you need to surround yourself with voices and content that's coming from a different angle. So we're going to upload a resource list in Discord. And I would love for this to be a collaborative effort too, for people to be able to tag on things that have helped them, um, music and books and podcasts. And I've even got a TikTok account on here of a mom who walks through how to talk about your body and sex with kids in really age appropriate ways. Um, so there's a lot of resources out there and we would love to just be able to direct you to some laid out that we have put our stamp of approval on. Very good. Well, uh, at this point, um, I, it just feels really important to take, this is like kind of a liminal space we're in, bringing up a conversation that is not gonna be brought up in regular everyday conversation, marinating in it, sitting in it, shining a light on it, right? Not hiding. Um, Elizabeth, I think this is an important moment for us. Uh, I would love it if you would take us into a, just a moment of prayer to settle ourselves, to get all we can from this experience, to, to trust that God sees us and loves us and trusts us as we pray to God and is not withholding from us. That uh, Please pray for us, Elizabeth. Absolutely. Please join me in prayer. Um, gosh, it can be incre incredibly hard to unlearn beliefs our families and members of our communities or church teach us in childhood. It's very hard a very hard internal struggle that can take time to completely heal. So God, we come to you. Uh, we look to you for healing and developing a healthier, more liberated relationship with our sexual self, whether single or in a relationship. For those that have been told they are ruined because they, are, they willingly chose to go against the message, messages taught to them about purity culture, or if they faced abuse, Jesus, Speak your words of truth. May they hear you saying to them that they are resilient, worthy, 
wonderful and neither ruined or devalued. For those that took that look at our bodies with disdain, God, may you put reminders in our daily life of how you made our bodies with creativity, care, and precision. As scripture says, then God looked and called us very good. I pray that when we look at ourselves in the mirror, that that truth is reflected back to us, that our bodies are good. For those in marriages or romantic relationships that feel a strain in their sex life as a result of the purity trauma they face, may your love weave through and bring healing. May you restore intimacy. For those that have been forced to feel like you are unnatural because you fall outside of the cisgender, cisgender heterosexual norm, God sees you and knows you. He doesn't see you as unnatural and not unnatural or less than. He delights in you and who you are. God welcomes you and embraces your identity fully. God, may you meet us all wherever we are in our journey of living ourselves into a new way of thinking. Amen.